Welcome to another episode of the Crash Chords Podcast. It's the second of the year, and we're raring to go. No, we today's not the second. Keep doing this. No, the like, second podcast of the year. Okay, of the year. It's the third of the year. It's the 20th of content. the year. It would imply that it would be obnoxious if I counted what number podcast of the year it was throughout the year. I'll try and do it. I don't know. we got to have a thing. could yeah. be our 2016 thing. It's a horrible thing. No, horrible, I don't, it's a terrible horrible thing. thing. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Um, and I wanted to start off the podcast talking about something that was going to be relevant for next week and actually now for two reasons isn't. Right. Um, and it was my choice for next week. I'm not actually picking next week's album. Um, John's going to be picking out of order and we'll explain later why and what album. Um, he'll get into that at the end like we usually do. Um, but my original choice for next week has been pushed off for important reasons. Um, if you've been under a rock today, then you might not have known otherwise. Today we lost um, David Bowie. He passed away today, the day we're recording. Which and you were going to pick Black Star. I was going to pick Black Star, which is his newest record. Um, but I'm hesitant to do it now uh, for a few reasons. I mean, yes, obviously it feels almost trite to to dissect an album for someone who's just passed away because... Who would we be talking to? Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and I mean, beyond that, it's like it's it's in the Pantheon and he's no longer with us, so it's not like... We're talking to what we want to see to come next. Certainly, it's not that we always are like directly talking to the artist, man. Like this is what you should do. That's not really why we do this. We do it just to sort of spur a public discussion about the album and what it means. But it would seem kind of inappropriate, especially to like think about the minutia that we usually tend to think about when you know there isn't the artist there to appreciate it. When well, uh, when that's not what is foremost on people's minds, for instance, at that time. Of course, I mean a lot of people have been struggling with just the loss of him. I've not seen my social media blow up with the same name as much as probably the last time it happened was when we lost Robin Williams. Um, it was the same thing, like for wall to wall from Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everywhere. It was just the same thing. And today it was the same. And at first I was just going to post a song and say, you know, we'll miss you, great rock star, so on and so forth. But as I sat listening to the song Gene Genie, uh, which is one of my favorites by Bowie, I found myself wanting to say more than that. So I'm going to read for you very quickly what I posted on Facebook. It's brief, but it's how I feel about David Bowie. So much love, admiration, appreciation, and expression through music warms my heart to see. David Bowie is one of the reasons I love music the way I do. I wouldn't be half the music nerd or music lover I am without him. He taught me what it meant to be brilliant, cool, strange, and sexy. He is a unique voice and mind that is one of a kind and that I'm thankful to have existed in the same dimension of time and space as I did. So, so you took it upon yourself to adopt the strange, cool, sexy, and brilliant? <laughs> nah, no, you're, you're a few of those things. You're, you're all right. <laughs> Thanks. You're, Thanks. You're okay. Um, He's one of those things. <laughs> Um, He's the first thing. He's strange. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And in fashion of when we've lost someone important to us, we've done this before for both personal collections and connections and more profound, I would like to dedicate this week's episode to David Bowie, of course. Absolutely. I think my friend Pete actually also uh, said it best because he kind of took after your lead there, or he, he had the same idea that he was going to listen to uh, the album Black Star like on his way to work at some point on the bus, and suddenly now it's going to take on new meaning. And I imagine that was maybe partially the intent 
friend because what's interesting is is he knew the entire time he, he knew as he was he had cancer he was he knew when he recorded this album going into it so it's a it was a strange thing that was on both the artist's mind and therefore it should be on listener's mind because that will actually be the theme which is why maybe it won't be so inappropriate for us to do that at a later date at a more time sensitive date let's just say um, I would like to say though we might also broach we've done uh, retrospectives of artists and there would be no better artist to do a retrospective of than David Bowie so maybe we'll do that and look at his works as a whole absolutely a uh, thing that we don't always do but that actually the person who recommended our uh, album this week does regularly on his podcast absolutely today we do have a listener pick and that is the album Vega International Night School by the artist Neon Indian brought to us courtesy of Doug Ferguson one half of the Music A to Z podcast. Uh, first, a quick plug for the Music A to Z podcast, if I may. The Music A to Z podcast is a music review, analysis, and discussion podcast, not totally unlike yours truly, but based out of Vancouver, Canada. I actually stumbled upon them early last year in what started off as a self-serving iTunes search, sort of surveying other people who kind of do what we do, and it actually culminated in what is so far my favorite of our anniversary episodes, episode 150, where we discussed music discussion podcasts in an attempt to support the pastime and to make a case for their place in the cultural ether. In other words, we're jerking each other off. That's that's the idea. Um, but in listening to Music A to Z, it actually spurred my idea for that episode, as I thought they, unlike the other six podcasts we discussed, uh, were closest to us in principle. Their shtick is basically this. From week to week, they cycle through the alphabet, they select a band or an artist of that letter, they go on to discuss the entire discography of that band. Crappy analogy time, they are the encyclopedia to our magnifying glass. Obviously, we trade roles on an as-needed basis, but in general... We focus on the here and the now, and they focus on the full-bodied history of the artist, a holistic approach that covers an artist's past, their discography, and their live feel of Aplipgul, a kind of artist's profile with a side of opinion. Uh, they're now on their third alphabetical cycle, the third P, P for Pogo, was released last Friday the 8th, and they're in my rotation, not just for, like I said, the ideologically similar time and devotion they throw into their podcast and their music and their analysis, but they're also an entertaining duo, important on any level. I think that either in one direction or the other, our podcasts make nice compliments, like wine and cheese, but I won't say which is which, because no one wants to be called the cheese cast. Except maybe the Epic Podcast, they, they might like that. They might Seems like, like being the cheese cast. Nice name follow-up for them. Um, yeah, no, I, I love the Music A to Z podcast. I think it was cool that they've been so interactive with us since we talked about them on our show on episode 150. Um, Doug and Steve have both reached out to me personally. Uh, with, they reached out to me about audio questions, which I then deflected to Steve because he has all those answers. Oh, thanks. He's, but, the, one, um, he's the one that does that. He yeah. does. Um, but uh, but they've been very interactive and very nice. They've tweeted us and commented on, on Facebook. Um, so we appreciate the listener pick. Um, we like to stay interactive with the audience, and it's good to know they're fans because we're fans of their work as well. Absolutely. And for all those out there interested, please check out the Music A to Z podcast at musicatozpodcast.com. The link will be in the show notes, of course, specifically to the episode in which they discuss in the broad what we are about to scrutinize a small piece of, the artist Neon Indian, namely their 2015 album Vega International Night School. Uh, by the way, Doug Ferguson reached out to us in early November, which is a while ago we had to delay that as a result of uh, other listener picks in the lineup. Uh, uh, but that was about a month before their episode on the band, um, an episode that I actually avoided 
so as not to be overly influenced today. But I'll certainly have listened to it by the time this is published, and I encourage all our listeners to do the same. Take the tandem leap if you'd be so bold. Listen to everything Neon Indian. Listen to Music A to Z's episode. Listen to this episode. That's a lot of listening, I know, but come on. What are you, chicken? Wow, you're blatantly <laughs> calling out our listeners. Yes, that's right. A belligerent 2016. That's the way I like to do it. You're um, always I thought it was mean. No, but it was mean 2015. Oh. Mean yeah. 2015? Yeah, it mean was mean. 20, yeah, well, that's going to just... I don't know what, what this year's We're in the teens. Is. It's a continuous, ongoing rhyme. Well, I, no, no, no. It's, it, it isn't. It isn't. There's a different rhyme scheme this year. There's there's some other thing to do. I don't know. Well, belligerent isn't a rhyme at all anyway. I can find something to rhyme Maybe with Maybe it's the green 2016? Right, hit, hit, hit the source. Hit, 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 hit it. Give me a few minutes. Cool. All right, you'll get back to me. Um, anyway, Hunted Neon Indian. Uh, I'm unfamiliar. Matt's unfamiliar. John's unfamiliar, correct? Yeah, I'm pretty unfamiliar. Excellent. Uh, Neon Indian is slash is fronted by Alan Palomo, a Mexican Texan composer specializing in synth pop, indie electronica, that sort of thing. He writes all the music, but there are band members who join him on stage. Studio-wise, it is mostly electronic, though. His background is in DJ work, so it does tend to be very danceable. That's a big spoiler for this album. Uh, his other projects have included Ghost Hustler and Vega, projects which I believe for a time coexisted with Neon Indian, and this is kind of interesting. His newest album, which is what we're reviewing today, Vega International Night School, is named such because it represents a style merger between Vega and Neon Indian. Vega is now Kaputsky's. It's done. Neon Indian won. So whatever you would have found there, you will now find here. I find that kind of interesting, considering we discussed the whole many hats musician concept back in uh, episode 144, I think that was the Blur episode, and all the pros and cons of, of being a many hats musician. And this is a case where an artist just intuitively knew that to continue both projects at once would be redundant. I think that's refreshingly self-aware. Uh, I would agree. I, I think there are actually quite a few <laughs> DJ bands, and I'll mention a few of them during the episode that uh, these guys remind me of. Um, that I wasn't familiar with them beforehand. In fact, I find, which is an odd pattern, but most modern DJ composers slash dance musicians I've had recommended to me by other people and liked. I've not sought them out myself. And also DJs do tend to have multiple projects. I don't know, maybe just because they want to be known for different things apart from just being the DJ, or it's like the DJ that does this. Well, that's or that true. Does that. I mean, uh, it's good I, for that environment or that environment. When I in interviewed Shy Boy, he also works under the name DJ Shy Boy and he does DJing at clubs in LA and his DJing work is a lot of mashup stuff but he also do, did some cool electronica stuff he's done kind of indie rock stuff so you know I think they like to have kind of a, a wide background and usually if you're a DJ you have to know what's latest and greatest so you have to kind of mix it together or sure. at least be aware of it absolutely although at the same time it also seems like he's kind of his his own man here but he he does throw back to a lot of things and this is kind of an interesting concept uh, even going into this album the the general theme he did mention in an interview I think with consequence of, of, of sound as being most of uh, what he learned about human nature in his 20s and that it had happened mostly after dark because he's kind of a night owl and I guess that's an interesting way to view the world especially when you're surrounded by a bunch of nine to fivers it's something I guess artists have to deal with a lot so he recorded this in a number of strange places like a cabin a cruise ship uh, New York's plantain studios and pure X's Austin practice space so there you go um, that's what we're gonna be getting also a lot of bellyaric beats which, by the way, is a beat taken from the Belearic Islands in the Mediterranean. Um, it's a thing. It really is a, is like a techno thing. But we've never looked at anything of the kind before today. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just getting that out. Uh, anyone want to get some words out on the cover, the album cover here? I don't actually remember it. I've blanked on it completely. I've it's, just it's, blanked on it It's not mind-blowing. It's not a mind-blowing cover. It's just very intent on stressing its title. Like, it's a lot of Vega International Night School plastered throughout the entire cover. Also in Japanese, several times on the banner to the left, also at the bottom. And there's, like, a slightly broken QR code. Interesting. Which might actually be the... Or which was, and if it was not incomplete, a link to the album or... In, in QR language, whatever the hell that is, actually says Big International Night School because it would be consistent. That would be actually really cool. Yeah. If, if, if it was an actual QR code to bring you to the website for yeah. the album. And then finally just him on stage, just like at an open mic with a brick wall in the background and a neon sign saying Night School. Oh, now I do remember. Yeah, yes. it's, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it, it stresses its title, like I said. Uh, the QR code is not working. I'm trying it right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incomplete. It wouldn't yeah. work. But um, it's yeah. All right, it's so you have to find the people who program QR codes and see if the top of it. Maybe they can complete. go all CSI on it and reconstruct the QR code. All right, oh, don't talk about CSI Cyber. I mean, it's it's a terrible show. It's just another CSI. Except <laughs> I didn't actually know there was a CSI. Yeah, it's cyber. a thing now. It's 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 a thing. I tend to stick to just SVU. Yeah, it's a little more rough. A little more, you know, rigged. It is. You know, you're right. I just didn't know what to follow it up with. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, we're getting sidetracked. Let's follow it up with the first track. Yes, track let's get into one, the album. Track one, Hit Parade, which, by the way, is purely an instrumental intro, and it's not very long. It's just a little over a minute long, uh, and it's a pretty sweet club setup that he's got here because it's almost like five different variations on the same layer or various layers compounding on themselves. Sort of this electronic answer to the old uh, classical form, variations on a theme, same concept. But it's fascinating because it's all compressed into just one minute. Starting off in the, like, the first section, you get this very light kind of watery sound. It's somewhat weaker. You get brushing sounds in the background. And you only get about one and a half cycles of that before you get the second theme where the brushes are a bit harsher. Everything is much louder. Like the synth machine is sort of warming up and everything's just getting more intense. And then finally the third comes around, which I thought was a really interesting moment because now the bass has just dropped out and you're left with this bold and blaring synth, which really is sort of a new theme of itself, a rattle that gets more intense with the drum box. And that bass becomes one of the major themes of this album, one of the, the focal points of it. And I like the way that the, it's being previewed right here. It seems like a lot of the ideas that do get interspersed uh, in the rest of the album are being showcased here. The idea of sort of a muted experience, a little bit of a tape deck, kind of a, a, a twang to it, a yep. little bit of that sort of dissonance you get with used equipment, with, with used music, the actual physical copy starting to deteriorate a little, going into more fleshed out ideas. It's, it's the ideas that get pushed into the rest of the album as a whole. And here we're just getting tidbits. Tidbits. That's, that's, that's well, the that's most why appropriate I would really, way. I would really almost see it in the opposite of the way you described it, that rather of like the deterioration of it, this is like the building blocks of kind of well, what he uh, does. It starts with the deteriorating piece, and then it's sort of like he's refining it. And considering how rooted in the sound of the 80s and 70s this album is, it's almost symbolic of him rebuilding the sound itself. Well, it does deteriorate. Uh, sort of toward the end, although you come to think of it anticipated uh, when you heard me say that the bass dropped out. I think you yeah. were anticipating the part in which the bass comes in full force. Ooh, I love that part. Which is the fourth segment of this minute. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna drag out this minute long track. I'm gonna do that. The fourth segment, which is uh, about around 40 seconds, I would say, where you just get the full blown funk bass. 
And seriously, I'm ready to like duck out of this podcast when I hear funk bass because I am useless for objective analysis. All the music journalist's integrity that I've cultivated throughout college and crash chords and classical light just go out the window and I'm reduced to a dancing moron. Wow. As opposed to just a moron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> what I liked about this track, especially for an intro, is it's this kind of trippy, almost played in reverse kind of feel, especially in the beginning of the track. Mm -hmm. It's as if someone took a record playing on a record player and just spun it the other way. And it, it that kind of glitchy sound just added an interesting character to the first few seconds. And because this was only a little over a minute and it was very much just an introductory track, it kind of grabbed my attention pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's a character that really stays throughout the rest of the mm -hmm. album. Little things he, he does as a DJ, might even do live, he infuses right there, straight directly into his studio work. Uh, but yeah, then the deterioration begins at the fifth segment, where it just kind of fades back into the this sort of watery thing that we sort of got in the beginning, and then we fade right into the next track. But one last little thing about this intro, what I really love about just part of these sections which sound like they're in such stark contrast from another, they do build very naturally in terms of adding that extra little layer. Um, and I like also that they're not these even segments of like, you know, four cycles, repeat, four cycles, uh, add a layer. You know, that's 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 the nice little even way to build tracks. It's not like that. Really, off, very often it's just like, you know, a, a cycle and a half or maybe a cycle of seven measures or something like that, just to throw you off a little bit. No solid groups. And from there we get track two, uh, Annie, which, by the way, is the first single that was released. From the minute this track starts, it, it continues to be as groovy as the pre previous track was. Um, it's so still it, it does slow down. That's that's the thing. From Hit Parade to Annie, it's almost like there's a just a slight little hiccup. That final section does a lot to allow the rhythm to just elongate enough to fit Annie's idea of what they're of what they're presenting here. Yeah, it's very natural. They're almost the same track. Yeah, I mean that said the transition is flawless. Like they sound complete like they were meant to be together. And but it still does have that kind of techie sound that the previous track had, but it does blend pretty well into what turns out to be a very steady reggae beat, you know, yeah, reggae that, being reggae. That's the main distinction. This is reggae. I wouldn't have initially called Hit Parade reggae. Annie is reggae. It's Everything has just got this this steady beat that, that, that doesn't really let up throughout the entire track. It's mostly just this one, a two, and one, a two, and just that whole thing. Uh, it, it basically drives the song with like little subtle changes from verse to chorus. Uh, and then, of course, we do get vocals here. That's the other big distinction about Annie. Um, his vocals are sort of sifted through a couple of filters, though. A little bit of reverb um, with a kind of quick decay, and then a slightly electronic uh, uh, filter just to sort of blend it in. On the whole, it's nothing super special, um, but the melody is very punctuated. The vocals were one of my least favorite parts of this track because of how quickly they bleed into the rest of the song. Because of the the quick decay and because of the fact that it is being electronified, it is being computerized in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel distinct with everything else that's surrounding it. The bass that's there, the very heavy bass that's there, is very enjoyable as just a steady through line. The high-end punctuation that's thrown on the end of a lot of measures is, is really nice nice little tidbits to, to, to latch onto and to build upon. Yeah. But the vocals fluctuating between the two, they almost get droned out. Not drowned out, droned out on top of everything else because there is a lot of electronica following along with him, with his voice, 
and it, they're just too similar. They're not complementing, they're, they're merging. Uh, I'm not sure I agree 100% on that. I think the vocals were really just more of a take-it-or-leave-it deal for me. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't something I'm like, nah, this is really conflicting with the music itself. It was just they weren't, they weren't standout-ish because you just have this kind of relaxing reggae groove that, I don't know, I just don't really see a lot of vocals standing out in that environment at all. It didn't really have anything to do with the electronic-sounding nature of it. It didn't even sound that electronic. I'm just saying there were a couple of filters. It's not like it was a, a vocalizer or anything. He just, mm -hmm. he, I think he blended it well, all things considered. Um, and I did like a couple of things about it even more so. The, uh, there's a large breath mark between those phrases. That's kind of what you were describing, yes. like how there's a punctuation at the end of certain measures, and then all of a sudden you get this, this, this breath mark. Um, <coughs> the vocals aren't really designed to be fluid here. If anything, he wants to really anchor you back to the beat as quick as possible. That's his goal. In the midst of this, you have a lot of, like, funk guitar in the background. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it just doesn't change very much. No, no yeah, it, it's fairly simplistic and predictable, but I don't really think that's a bad thing for this. I mean, also consider this. It's the first single, and while it's cliche to say this, I mean, giving something digestible to be the introductory track to the album pretty much, since it follows the intro, and to their sound, like, especially for us, people who have not really heard Neon Indian before, this is kind of a good way to let people in easy. I mean, yes, sometimes you want to come up with just what you do from the beginning to just show them what you're at, but easing them in is okay too. Um, and also this song, you know, doesn't bleed through into the next track like the previous track did. It does have an end, but I think as a whole, this song is just finding a way to engage the audience on a level that's more approachable. Well, it's that end, that outro, which I do want to address uh, a, a little bit later on here. But I'm not, I do want to stress, I'm not about to completely dismiss this track as just like, yeah, okay, it's a basic reggae beat. It, there's, there's more to it than that. It's just sort of a general way of describing his blend between the verses and the choruses. Because in this particular case, there's not such a stark contrast there. The, the groove persists right throughout, and there's not too much of a change. In fact, I, I did really like what you could almost call a pre-chorus here. It, it, it occurs, obviously, right before the chorus, um, and it's a pre-chorus if you could call it that. It's, it's, it's very similar to the verse, but melodically, it does emphasize uh, this, this tool of punctuation, uh, specifically the lines, Now try to see, she said to give you a ring. Now I try to sleep, but all I can hear is the beep. And then that's the cue for the chorus to begin. You hear this beep, beep, and suddenly you get the answering, answering machine, answering, answering machine, just your answering machine, answering machine, why won't you come and find me? That, that's, that's essentially the whole goal of the track, is him trying to equate the answering machine as this kind of thing that's just, well, it's blinking, it's there. I mean, she's, she's on the horizon somewhere and using the answering machine as a kind of metaphor for, well, that she's on his mind. Yeah, but I didn't really get a sense of, like, besides that very specific example, getting a sense of the story here from the song, I just didn't really get from listening to the vocals. Again, back to what John was because saying. Because reggae doesn't seem to fit this in many ways. Well, that and his vocals do blend with the music, which is okay. I don't mind that when the vocals are an instrument, but, like, they just didn't stand out as much as, as I might have liked. I would have gotten a better sense of what was being talked about here. If anything, the choices he made to his vocals fit the theme of the chorus appropriately. I mean, it does give that sort of a feel to them. That being said, an answering machine, what singing into one of those is not going to be very powerful just because of the, the standard material that's being used to record it. it. It just doesn't promote a melodic idea in vocals. And that's where my big issue is coming in. Yes, it is very much take it or leave it, but for me, I'm really leaving it on this one. 
Okay, I think I understand. I mean, obviously this is this is getting really, really picky here, but just basically that he, the filter that he's using is almost meant to embody that answering machine exactly. feel. And that inherently that's not the best, like, musical idea. Like, it, that doesn't sound very pleasing to your ear. That's, that's exactly it. And the reason I'm going to harp on this is because this is the introductory track. Not the intro to the album, but this is the first time we're getting I the think... full-fledged piece. I, I feel like it, this is, in a lot of ways, the best presentation of the album. Because I... it's the first time you're going to hear him singing. Yeah, I think that's why uh, we're being a little picky here. Is because we listen to the album and we know what he can do. And it's coming up. It's coming up later in this album. But as of this particular point, it's like this was the first single. I feel like in many ways the world is sort of ready for what he can do. And the more interesting side of him, which we are about to get. Starting quite deep into this track. Like somewhere around like the three minute mark. We get a solo that I just was out of this world. Seriously, I was very blasé on this track up until about the three-minute mark. Up to that point, it was just a chill groove, uh, four-chord progression, that's about all I'd use it for, maybe background party music, until this moment where we get a synth solo that I just did not expect. I had, I thought I had the track figured out by now, and then all of a sudden we just get this, this like, catchy solo that is so... It's made up of, like, two components, like a, a, a synth and maybe a higher synth, or maybe it's that synth that kind of changes pitch along with its... Uh, changes phasing along with its register. And the, the certain synths do that. They have a tendency to do that. And it was just so catchy, I had to run over to my piano just to figure this part out. Incidentally, I don't really have to do a lot of running. I just have to twist myself 90 <laughs> degrees because that's how my setup is. Um, I, that's what I got to say for it. It was just it was just this amazing moment that I thought was almost didn't belong in a, in a reggae track, but I was thoroughly invested. I was completely blindsided by it. I didn't see it coming at yeah. all, but I, I agree. I think it was very enjoyable, and it added a juxtaposition to the track that I wasn't expecting that I really appreciated, and it, it made it m- more than just a single that was catchy. Well, I'm not quite ready to call it juxtaposition because that implies it came from such, some like higher-minded artistic idea that, ah, this will perfectly contrast with that. I think it was just like... This is a really cool musical idea that he just thought up, and he just kind of slapped it up, slapped it on the end of this track. Um, I, I don't think there was any real logical reason for it. I just know that I, 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 I like good music. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Gee, thanks, that's, Steve. that's what this podcast has boiled well, down to. It's hard to really explain a lot of the stuff that we're going to be getting into because of its electronic nature. In fact, in the next track, Street Level, I love the beat, but the only way for me to describe this beat is as wah-wah manipulation. That's the only way I can describe it, because it's chaotic. It's very loose in its cohesion. The next track takes us on a whole another oh, realm. It's it's um it's it's very warped, and warped doesn't even really begin to, to do justice really what this track is about. But the last thing I just wanted to say, as far as this transition was concerned, is he did really he, he did set us up quite well for this this uh this next track, track track three, I guess technically, if you're gonna really count the intro, which I do because I talked about it at such length, obviously I have to. But still, this um, th- this this tail end, even like following that that uh, that cool solo at the end there, it did start to like like shift into this really cool bass groove, which I thought was a really nice like like bookmark almost between these two tracks. So that by the time we get this, you're sort of your your palate is cleansed. You're ready for something new. And what you first hear is is this underlying groove that is not really the most grooveable. All things considered, it. It is very groovable, but in a more evasive sense. It's intentionally trying to make it sound as if the DJ is just spinning you down and then right back on tempo. Of course, at the same time, the tempo never really does shift. It never wavers from 
from where it's at, but the samples that may have actually done that in production, it's like they were realigned in post so that they were actually falling out of tempo in pre-production and then all of a sudden they're just realigned to, to uh, go with the tick. It's, it's pretty cool. And then all of the other stuff, the chromatic little shifts he does in here, it's just so warped. And it's composed of so many bends, these these synth accents that are also like anchoring you on the first semi-quaver of the measure. This like one eat to eat, you know, the 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 first of the four. It's pretty cool, and it's it's it's. I thought it was irresistible within like 20 seconds. So like almost immediately after after you set yourself up for the fact, like okay, yeah, this is uh, a little bit warped. You're you're by that point, you're used to it, and you're ready to 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 dance to it or whatever. It's also dangerous. I like the fact that it's it's a skewed idea. It is, like I said, a loss of cohesion in, in the measure itself. Everything's starting to fall apart, but there's enough holding it together. The contrast that comes in later on does a lot to cement that, that sort of glue that's on top of everything, even though it tends to be accent notes. The very high vibrating buzzes is... The only way I can describe it, but it's it's an incredible little accent that gets thrown in and towards the end of the measures of of this really loose groove. That maybe you're thinking of the synth thing that I was talking about on the, the no first. even even further even further. It's it's a it's really a, almost a high pitched buzzing whine. It's a weird combination. Oh, I think of, I know what you're talking about now. Pieces coming together. There were lots of things conflicting against one another. All I say conflicting. It was they were so well worked. I, I just I, I love it. It's it made it such an engaging groove from the get. Uh, but even further than that, this is where I started to really appreciate his melodies. More so. You'd think it would be all about the groove in this track, but I really, really liked these these, these lines here. Uh, starting with just the first verse. Um, Give me four, because it's all right. Yeah, we're going to go swimming tonight. Pavement shores, gutter low tide. Couldn't be a red cloud in sight. And the streets in knots, red lights like blood clots, red eyes like gunshots. And this is another really great melodic cell. Just right here, beside of just like the little bend that he throws right on the, the word red in each case. It, it, it's so beautiful. And it really emphasizes the, the whole Dorian mode of this. Whereas it would normally be like an F sharp major, there's a natural six here instead. It's 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 not flatted. It lights like blood. That's that's the specific three notes I'm talking about it. D sharp, B, C sharp. It's just so beautiful. Or same thing in the next line. Eyes like gun absolutely beautiful it's just a soul-splitting instant earworm that i had to repeat over and over and over again and then uh that gives you the pre-chorus which adds so much more stuff to this track it's just so busy at this point the lyrics are actually barely uh, enunciated at this point they're just muttered beneath all the stuff and you get this piercing squeal in here who knows maybe that's what you were talking about <laughs> yeah that's that exactly would have been. it yeah and then uh, uh this sort of chromatic synth solo which which expands off of some of the same ideas that I heard in the last track and the solo we heard in Annie. It's just so beautiful. What I like about this track is that it, it starts to lean towards where he gets a bit surreal, which he'll do much more of as the album goes on. It actually reminded me quite a bit of when we reviewed Neil Sussirger's album, because Neil Sussirger, when he did his mashups, he would warp the sounds, he would twist it, raise the pitch, raise the speed, slow it down. I mean, how many times can you change up All-Star by Smash Mouth without changing exactly how it sounds? Exactly. And so I got that sense of surrealism <laughs> here, too. It was reminiscent of when we took on that record. Yeah. And this is a more concrete theme. This is a more place as opposed to person. Annie was uh, one person talking to another. This is describing in broad, broad paint strokes and minute detail at the same time 
a very specific experience in his neighborhood, in, in the ideas that he's presenting here. To have the imagery of these words combined with a very, like you said, surreal. I love that word. I think that's very appropriate. And is, fun, is, interesting is enough, great. when I say it's beautiful, it's beautiful in a surreal way that can only be, be I guess, conveyed through a kind of surrealist art form. Um, and this is musical surrealism right here, pop dance music surrealism, which I don't hear a lot. And this is what I meant when I said the world is, is ready for what he has to deliver. And it's why I felt, you know, that it didn't have to be so, so curtailed in the case of Annie, because this is a perfect single right here. And, and yet it wasn't one. Um, as we wind down the track, we, the, right before the outro, we get this solo that, uh, Steve, mentioned sounded very much J-pop like what you would expect from almost cliche J-pop synth is kind of what this solo kind of transcends to. You know now that I think about it I would even take it back further than I would just J-pop. It's this tinny solo and that's why I tend to go J-pop because obviously they make use of a lot of little tinny synth ideas but it it, combined with the very old-fashioned like 70s 80s bass synth it it sounded like something straight out of uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra. I don't know if anyone knows Yellow Magic Orchestra, but uh, Sakamoto's old project. Great stuff. I actually have their album Solid State Survivor on on vinyl. It's a bright yellow record. (laughs) Uh, Gee. (laughs) Of course. Uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of the vibe that I got here. And it's like, I, I'm not sure if that's an influence, but I, there's so many influences that are brought up from the 70s and the 80s into what I feel is a wildly new track. Um, he had me hooked at, as of this. And, and that solo was gorgeous and engaging and awesome and still felt very much characteristically part of the track. Unlike Annie's outro, unlike that final little bit that we're getting in Annie, this one feels really complete with the solo, with the outro. Everything really does have a cohesion there. Well, that's also because Annie kind of just stops and then Street Level starts. Here, Street Level blends perfectly into smut or smut, as the exclamation point would di- dictate. Um, that's filthy. It is filthy. That's what smut is. Well, maybe he just implanted this in my mind, but the ambience of the background commotion, honestly, girls laughing in kind of a sensual manner, kind of an echoey acoustic environment uh, from the feel of it, 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 as if it were some distance from the mic, it really made me feel as if this was like in a strip club sample. And maybe it's just because he implanted the word smut. Well, of course, it's a strip club. I don't know. It sounded like something that was, you know, a, a soundbite recorded from some some night environment. Because, again, he he's a creature of the night, as he told us. There are sort of like that ice swirling in drink sounds. There's water pouring. There's bubble effects throughout this entire track. There's things like laser effects and stuff like that like that you would have got from old school cheesy introduction strip club pieces like it's been tropes in the portrayal of strip clubs for a very long time they're being used here i don't know if he's actually using legit taken from somewhere else sound bites or it's just inserting it into this track but this what street level did in creating a distorted surreal experience uh-huh. this is creating very much the same deal in a very different location. That's exactly what I found. It's 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 warped in a totally different way. Um, and and whether that you know I'm kind of almost off the the strip club idea, like even past the introduction, but still it maintains this warped this warped feel. Um, mainly because despite being very plainly in like 
sort of F major, you know, bass and vocals alike. They're they're all aligned here. Everything seems like it's it's in a pretty stable key. There's just something off here. There's something I, I couldn't pinpoint. And I think it's in the bends, I think. I think it's in the way everything just vibrates, like a little bit off-center or something. So it feels so warped in the going of it. I, I, I had a hard time really explaining what it was or, or finding out musically what it was. But, but like I said, much like the last track, after a minute in, you're pretty much used to it. And you're along for the ride. Um, I want to comment on the vocals a little bit because... Here, he's singing already. We've gotten two songs where his vocals blended with the instrumentation a bit, kind of a little deeper, kind of even. Here, he's in falsetto pretty much the entire track, and I thought that was an interesting choice. At one point, me and John couldn't even tell if it was the same singer or not. We thought it might have been a female vocalist because it just it stays at that falsetto the entire time. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty high. It sounds so much higher pitched than his previous. And what he's saying is creating a very interesting picture because it seems just too appropriate for the strip club scene. In the eve of the summertime, true love only part-time. And this is truth. In your skin-tight neoprene, I'm a loaded magazine. Or is that uncouth? Okay, okay. He, Who well, makes first... that kind of innuendo and then says uncouth? <laughs> I mean, that I, I like that wordplay. That shows both sides of his talent right here. It's the degenerate, and it's, you know, the the wordsmith. It's the guy who uses uncouth. I love that. <laughs> people say uncouth. I've heard people say uncouth. Um, actually, I used to say uncouth, but maybe that speaks to me. I don't know. This is, it, it's weird because actually when you're, when you're looking at those lyrics, it, I'm almost more entranced in the way in which he says it. In just this, not just that falsetto, but it's, it's like he's on some kind of opiate. It's weird. It just does he sound says trippy. Those lines, in, in the eve of the summertime, it's just like, I feel like, I don't know if anyone remembers the Simpsons episode where Mr. Mr. Burns, Burns is just like, like that's what I yeah. see right now. No, I do. I get that kind of vision. Also, I mean, the sound effects don't hurt it either. I mean, you get like distinctly laser sound effects at some point, like literal pew pew sounds <laughs> during the song. Also, you know, the way the bass kind of feels muddied and smutty, if it's, you will. It's almost it's a hard analysis. Almost I can <laughs> like neo-jazz in some ways. Not that it's jazzy as in experimental or anything like that, but it's it's noir jazz, like portrayed in Blade Runner, something of that sort. I mean, it's it's in that really heavy bass that just works as a setting builder. Yeah, I, I, I can only say that it's something about maybe the way it moves to the chorus here also but where it, it shifts from like i said that f major feel and then it goes to like these this the three and the two chords it almost feels so out of place just that shift it feels like an out and out modulation and a weird modulation at that and i think that's another reason why i, I thought it felt so warped because each and every time it pivots back and forth from verse to chorus it's it's like it's in a different environment and then it goes back to the verse and suddenly we're back in this sort of cd cd place but the 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 chorus is a little bit more uplifting. I don't know. It's just it's a stuttered transition. The chords the chords don't fit. They just are. And then there's the muted interlude, where it, we just kind of like delve down into the feels. It's it's something that's going to show up a lot in this album, where a lot of the sound gets kind of like thrown behind a closed door, or thrown yep. underwater. It's another one of those moments where a lot of the clutter in the track just sort of fades away and you get one, two, maybe three different electronic lines going. Here the bass shows up and it shows up great just to give 
that extra little like punctuation in the gyration that's being built here. Yeah, and I found that the interludes they're always they're always neat and they do make good breath marks. They serve their purpose there, but I, I find that he does the more interesting instrumental stuff, uh, not in his interludes, but rather in his outros. Because by the time we get to the end of this track, he sort of pulls another thing he did before with another cool little you know flourish, but this time more of like in the vein of like a Pink Floyd outro. It just got so atmospheric. It, it felt like something straight out of uh, the track Any Color You Like. Um, it was it was brief. It was very brief because then following that we go into this like you called it a radio tuning transition. Yeah, it I was sounded, more invested in the part prior. <laughs> it sounds like someone going down the dial on a radio tuner. Um, I've heard bands like Queens of the Stone Age do a similar thing where it lends to the next song here. It was just kind of... Just sort of like scanning samples and like the song is somewhere just caught in the broadcasting ether of, of the, the world that he's in. I don't know. That's something I don't like and usually harp on. Here I did fit with, with the ideas that are going on. There's a lot of just mutability associated with what he's doing here. Absolutely, and, and I'm, I'm on the page that I don't really get. I mean, it's a mutable uh, tool in of itself. It will just, it will accentuate whatever you're working with, or it will perhaps be to its detriment. If, for instance, you have a really, really bland track, then you're going to say, like, well, come on, what, what is that supposed to mean? What am I supposed to feel from this these random sounds coming from the radio? But here, it was just, yeah, it was, it was appropriate. And it brings you, interestingly, to uh, sort of an interlude for the album, track five, Bozo. It's kind of kind of an intermission, although it's a little it's a little early from center. Uh, but this just rang of a DJ having fun. It, it, it's how I see much of this album, uh, much of the inter, the innards of this album, and not like the hard content because we do get a lot of hard content as well. But this is just like that goofy synth sound. When when you take everything else away and just it's left alone, it just sounds plain goofy. There are there's all the mel- elements. There's like little vocal sound bites here and there, but. This particular brand of his surrealism makes me feel like I'm watching the original Total Recall, which actually, as far as I'm concerned, is the only Total Recall. I never actually saw the remake. I had no desire. Oh, thank you. Oh, good. The remake. Good. It's it's a little hackney. Um, I want to I want to use that word. It's just a little bit there. It's because it's got that slight off key kind of a feel to it. I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's that hackneyed because I like the head bobbing nature of it. Like this I don't is know. something. When Jingle I... Bells comes in, it it bothers me a little bit. What's yeah, going I want to stress this because I'm I, I feel like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth here. Obviously, I called it goofy, and then I'm like, well, it sounds like the original Total Recall. But I like the original Total Recall, so clearly I have an ear for this kind of goofiness. I just I just feel that in this particular uh, uh, track, unlike the other one minute track, because this was not that long, right? Only a minute. No, and about change. a minute and a half. I think. Yeah. Unlike the beginning, which had all this exposition and was very composed in its layering, this was just a little bit more straightforward. It only had one distinct change, and that was around 45 seconds in. The, the changes up the chord becomes a little bit tinnier, and once again, at the tail end, I really, really dug the solo. But relatively speaking, in terms of the album, I thought it was I don't know, it was an odd time for a, a breather, a little early. I feel like it's just meant to serve as a cruising track, and you just cruise on through to the next. It track. does. It does. That's a good purpose, actually. It's yeah. just it's it's to move the album along. I think possibly transitioning from Smut to the Glitzy Hive, which is the following track, would have been a little more awkward. So having this kind of groove to cruise through to, I think that's the purpose it's serving. Whether it, it was really really needed, who knows? But I think it did serve its purpose well enough. Uh, point taken. And, of course, The Glitzy Hive is what we get next, track six, which, by the way, is the third single uh, released. And this one is, like, at least so far, the 80 we get. 
The eightieth? I mean, yes. All right, we're gonna go with that. I would even push it back a little earlier, maybe to like the late seventies, because there's something about this that really reminded me of like off the wall, uh, that brand of Michael Jackson. There are sure. little Michael his Jackson things do that, similar things to that too that I've heard. Maybe not his vocals quite yet, but maybe the overall funk feel mm-hmm. of this track. There are later moments in this album where he really, I feel, emulates um, or excels at at delivering this Michael Jackson feel. Um, but certainly in terms of the funk feel, this is that early Michael Jackson vibe where. It's just it, it's funk, but it's popified funk. Um, it has all these really crisp sounds in it, and once again, I really have to compliment his mixing as a whole, which is just phenomenal. And Being it's a also, DJ, that's where he excels. It's also to be said here that it distinctly has less glitchy and soundbite stuff. So he's doing something a little different. We got some of that. Now he's trying something without as much of it, which gives you a little more clarity on what he's doing here. But I do miss those soundbite bits because I've come to accept them as home and I enjoyed them. <laughs> I don't like the fact that the tonal shifts are gone. That was something that was really entertaining. When, when we start talking about loose cohesion, words that I use, I love using words like that, loose cohesion. Here, everything was very steady, very regimented. It was it was timed out without those major tonal shifts and without those major like play that I, I really was enjoying in the last two tracks. And, you know, what was most regimented was the lyrics. The lyrics here, I, I was... I was Granted, of course, I haven't, like, lauded the lyrics so far yet, except the certain melodic cells in which there are lyrics there, but that's in, it's incidental. I'm not even really paying attention to the words. I'm really focusing on those melodies. But here, uh, both were kind of just a little bit lacking. Um, party. She's at the monster party. Party, party. She's at the monster party. Uh, little girl flipping through your phone. Where you at this time of night? Asking for a couple dollars or more? Say your friends are waiting by. Never self-described a jealous type. Always keep the status quo. But you could be all dressed up in someone else's love. Oh, say it isn't so. Party! She's at the monster party. Party, party. Um, I don't know, the chorus was just wearing on me, and it made me feel as if it would... Some Certain lyrics sometimes, when they're emphasized a little bit too much, repeated a little bit too much, it makes me feel as if the track is dragging on as a whole, which isn't necessarily the case, but it's just the effect. Sure, but at around two minutes and five seconds, it does change a little bit because we do get some of the warping effect that we had heard on previous tracks, um, especially during the interlude that follows the the reprise of the chorus. It does feel a little more like the previous works, but still, again, even the warping, it's warping the stuff that had been steady all along, so it's only giving us momentary effects and nothing yeah, it's, new. It's another rendition of the muting quality that he likes to put on, on, on breakdowns. I'm not huge into just doing it for that sake. It wasn't like there was a bass line I was enthralled with or percussion line that I was enthralled with. I was just, oh, okay, so he's toning down the party for a moment and then bringing it right back up. Yeah. Uh, This is, I think, the key point in the album where people start really wondering who the artist is. Um, especially since we're, we're coming at him, at him, you know, for the first time. We haven't heard his previous work, and we're wondering, like, okay, who is he? What, what, what is, what is? Where's his soul for whatever that means? Um, and I began thinking, like, okay, track three and four are really where I'm at so far. Tracks three and four, I feel like he was doing something marvelously innovative. You can still see the influences, but frankly, they're being so reworked into something that is just him purely that that's what I want to see more of. Um, so then when he does things that pull back a little bit, like I feel he's doing here, I'm just left a little bit wanting. It's like there was nothing particularly to set this apart from what I feel was in no short supply 30 years ago. 
Um, there was just something about this track that felt like it was in a very safe ballpark also as far as club music is concerned and as far as this album is concerned. It's got no particular pizzazz. Even the instrumental, um, around two minutes, four seconds-ish, um, well, I guess if I'm saying four seconds, it's probably not ish. It's probably two minutes and four, four seconds. seconds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the primary groove is, like you said, uh, this is what you described, John. It's just reduced to more of a thump, but that's a standard twist. It's it's just, it's funky, it's danceable, but that's about it. Um, the one thing I did like about it was that little saxophone thing in the background. But even yeah, that was, that was, that was very, mm, didn't last. Yeah, and that's, I don't like the teasing. I, you know what, up until this point, I was enjoying getting teased with the sound bites and the, the, the just messing with us as we're listening to it. Here, the teasing was just not enticing enough to really get me into it. Until the end, this is another time where the outro does something weird that I really enjoyed. Here, it sort of just hollowed out the music. Instead of being just muted, it it felt like something was completely missing. Well, it was the, but that's what I liked about it, is that the strings are really what's left. And it was born out of the chorus, I remember. Uh, this because, and you, this was kind of hinted at in the first chorus. I heard that there were these like little fake synth strings in the background. Uh, one of my favorite holdovers from the 70s actually, used a lot in funk. Gene Page used it a lot. Um, one of my favorite funk composers from the era. And it, it was in the earlier chorus, and I heard it only vaguely, and it was kind of a minor element. And then I heard it at the end, and it seemed to be mixed louder. It seemed to be more present. Um, and then it became the only thing there. Everything else dropped out, and that's what I was left with, and which is, was a wonderful, wonderful moment for me to just focus on. And then from there, it takes us into the true outro, which is more of a keyboard thing, but in this very dreamlike, you know, yeah, like an 80s whitewashed kind of deal. But it had more of an emotional soul to it than I feel this entire track did. And that's what really, that's what you get for the last 30 seconds of this track. And I was absolutely loving that. So once again, he's he's brought me back in at the end, which is strange. One of my uh, biggest touchstones as far as uh, dance electronica is considered is Daft Punk, so I haven't made any illusions, but here, while it seems like there's been a lot of inspiration drawn from Daft Punk in this album thus far, it, here it feels like they're finally sampling something different. It's it's like the Tron soundtrack as opposed to a lot of the more mainstream albums. Uh, it, it's not alive. We're not getting the, the weird mashup style that's just, you know, really endearing, familiar, and confusing. Here we're getting... A lot of like the greatest hits of my favorite electronica composer, but sort of remixed with a, a different sensibility associated with it. Here it's that same sort of idea in this outro. It's It feels like it could work in a score in a lot of ways because of the way it's set up. It's, it does have a, an ambient leaning towards it. That's, I think, where it really sets it apart from Def Punk, in my opinion, is that Def Punk, for whatever it's worth, for for whatever you'd use it for. I don't think it really makes very good score material, necessarily. They always kind of intended this club focus, um, and that's about, I think, maybe the end of it. Not necessarily, but maybe. Uh, but here, yeah, I see I see how this could be used in a, in a more of a narrative sense, and, and I think that's where uh, he could perhaps take his, his future career if he hasn't yet done that. I'm not sure. Um, it's what I like best about it. But even so, regarding this track, I, I do feel it was just a tad divorced from the rest of it. Almost like, once again, it was sort of an arbitrary but great idea attached to the song. So let's go on to track 7, Dear Scorpio Magazine. Which, by the way, Scorpio Magazine was an 80s porn magazine. Um, an Italian 80s porn magazine. That's That's... 
I stress that. <laughs> I guess it's important to know for the tone of the song. Uh, and for all the issues that you'll be getting. And considering the nature of the the story so far, it, I immediately thought, Dear Penthouse. As soon as I saw this title while listening well, to it, Well, it's essentially went, the same went, thing. Yeah, I went, I went, oh, Dear Penthouse. So, good reference. I like it. I like learning something new, especially well, about porn. Let's uh, dive in to the lyrics for no actually no I'm not going to do that I'm going to dive into the music first because this this particular intro I, I, I was I wasn't honestly thinking porn magazine that was just something I was like hmm what's Scorpio magazine let's look it up oh well it turned out to be an Italian 80s porn magazine but musically it really brought me in a different direction this actually reminded me more of like the intro to some kind of 80s television show really it, it, it's pretty strange go back to the beginning of this track and try just like playing it to some kind of voiceover in your head some kind of like well here Here's going to be the show. And now, live from Studio 9G, it's Channel 5's very own Bob Belger, or some kind of cheesy name, and the feeling fine singers. Get ready, because for the next 30 minutes, you're watching the laugh and a half hour. It might work. It, it probably I'm just suggesting. could. Just the idea that's, that's being presented here. We have a rising tonal scale. We bring it right back down. It's It sort of has... I was thinking more of a VHX kind of introduction. Yeah. Like, at the beginning of, of one of those old, it's like... In, it's in the chord movies. changes. Yeah. It's specifically in those bold opening chords. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's intentionally cheesy in a way. And it's still a, a, a great groove um, enter main theme, because the main theme was sort of a sudden shift, but it still kind of worked together. And even still, the chords are really what makes this work, too. It's this harsh shift from an F major 7 down to a C sharp minor ninth, which is an oddball thing and then this little chromatic motion C major and then finally back up to F major 7 and that's your three chord cycle the the flat sixth in there makes it feel very very spacey yet at the same time kind of wholesome like space home friendly I don't know it didn't feel as you know clichely outer space or spacey <laughs> as some other 80s related stuff as I might say, we're at the high end of our analytical capabilities here. <laughs> but I would say that the, the lower synth tones that are in this track were absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, every time they I would came agree. in, I, would agree. I just kept getting sucked in. Whereas in previous tracks, it was the sound bites, the warping, or even the higher tones that really hooked me. Here, the low tones take a, a forefront and, and kind of almost make the track strut. And, you and know pulls what? me in when it does. It's also dated in kind of an endearing way. But it feels kind of glitchy to me. Not glitch in the sense that things are breaking on the end, which... Glitch likes to do when it's starting to create a speed, sort of like fall apart as as the tone starts to hit its culmination. Here, it's just in its presentation and the overall feel of itself. It has a very electronic, not electronic, but a very electronic kind of a feel to it that I you just tend to get. Really, with that. well, a I neon mean, Indian. <laughs> it feels computer as opposed to just a musical synthesizer or something like that. It feels yeah, computerized. Like it's natural sounds that weren't intended to be musical, necessarily. In, in many ways, and that gives it... Artificial, non-musical sounds. Yeah, but yeah. done in such a musical way, I'm having a lot of fun with this. Even the little guitar that keeps poking through. I don't know if it's real or not, but it keeps poking through. I like just the fact that elements just, once again, are chaotically coalescing. I remember that. I was around the one-minute mark. Yeah, I get a guitar solo, which was pretty pretty rad, and I think that's actually an apt word choice in this case, um, because it sort of intentionally sounds cheesy. Um, and then halfway through that solo, it was an interesting moment. The chords swap out the opening F major 7 for a D minor ninth. Only the bass 
alters to make that change. The F goes down to the D, and the block chords in the synth actually still stay the same. It's it's it, it, it's a tiny, but it's a notable shift, and I feel like it makes the uh, it it kind of pushes this particular section along and makes it feel like less of a courtesy solo. So you're once again sort of engaged by the whole. Um, other than these little subtle shifts, it wasn't a terribly varied track. I think I was just kind of enjoying this nostalgia trip, if anything. I mean, there were moments here, though, like when we got that kind of synth-style sax that was kind of warped and twisted. Oh, the wonky solo. That was more like 2 230 or something like that. Yeah. 30 seconds. And what I liked about that is that it, it took me back when we heard the kind of sax sound, but the minute it started warping, it brought me back to that kind of Neil Sussurgum, my modern DJ feel, and it kind of engaged me even more. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And you know why? That's because of the pitch bends. It's, yes. Like, it's it sort of sounds like a saxophone, but of course it's probably just another synth keyboard solo, but it's using that little pitch bend. You know that wheel that you would find, like, on the left side of a, of a, of a keyboard, and you just sort of reach your hand over and just go well, <laughs> to it, whatever single note you're playing. Like, it actually, the easiest thing a keyboard player can do. The sound actually reminds me of a soundbite from the Simpsons arcade game. In the nightmare scenario where you get knocked unconscious, you're attacked by flying saxophones, because that's Lisa's nightmare. Oh. And when you smash those saxophones, they make this kind of kind of warped saxophone sound, and that kind of reminds me of that. So this is bringing us down a lot of specific directions so far, this album. Many of them Simpsons. Yes. Like, two of them so far, uh, but it does break apart toward the end here. Yeah. Um, like, this is another track that kind of feels like it just decays and, and, and falls apart. It sounds like, almost like the whole track, which was just obviously a whole direct output up until now is now just reduced to being played on a speaker and what you're hearing is some other microphone being held up to that speaker. The whole track just kind of drops out. You get a little funk uh, guitar at the end there and then all of a sudden it's just like a very, very weak, muffled or a muted version of itself, Um, which was, I don't know, it was an idea. (laughs) I'm getting tired of this muting though. This is... Third time, fourth time we've gotten it on an album. I still think it's a take it or leave it thing for me. It's just I, I'm more interested in his in his content stuff. And that's one area where where obviously we're not talking about lyrics a lot. Um and earlier there was some there was some theme to be had. In this particular case, though, it seems as if he's just trying to imagine or superimpose some sort of uh mental pornography sequence, I guess on this girl. The idea that maybe he wants to relive some of, you know, that, I guess, with the girl at uh, in question. It, it seems like that's off. That's what's going on here. Every time I see her, her walking down the street, walking down the street, I'm wondering who she's going to meet. Often from a distance, always so discreet, to keep that prowler's pace, though, the the dirty sneaker squeak. It's a, it's a, it's a seedy approach, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it like, sounds it, almost creepy stalkery. Through the lens of someone who, who I guess, ordered a lot of uh, porn subscriptions in the 80s or something. <laughs> I wouldn't say almost. It sounds porn. It, it sounds, sounds creepy it's, and stalkery. It's, it's stalkery, yeah. I, I mean, I have no problem with the actual theme being presented here. It's just... The, the vo- vocals are a little bit weak to truly get that across. I'm not feeling the character saying this coming off as creepy. The words are, but nothing. It's it's just not working vocally for me. I mean, as a whole, this song I definitely didn't enjoy as much as the next track. This song I, I liked, but uh, again, I did get bored at certain parts and the outro was interesting, but again, it didn't hook me the whole time. The next track, however, and it's paired of Proceed, really did hook me. This is the second single from the album. It's called Slumlord. And this, as Steve said to start was an 80s space drama kind of sound like this is the song where we really get space like we 
uh, picture 80s space sound to be <laughs> when it comes to synth anyway? Well, first of all, it's the track that I, I think for the first time, it's not just borrowing, it's it's buried in the decade uh, circa 75 to 85. I want to put it there specifically. Sure. Because... And I, I love this intro here. The, the, this was some straight-up Vangelis material, and whenever I mention Vangelis, which I know I do, I do re- repeatedly, but as far as I'm concerned, he's the, he's the king, of my, in my opinion, of electronica. He's the guy who, who, when other people were just sort of dabbling in the genre and just sort of making use of little sound bites here and there, he was composing. He was making substance, substantial music uh, using these sound effects, and that's what I heard here. That's... That's I, I don't want to just dismiss this as simply sounding retro. It, it's just it it was more substantive than that. This is his narrative building purely through music. It couldn't have gotten more iconic unless they he went Europe and did the final countdown. <laughs> I mean, it was perfect for what it is, and it had the greatest of transitions. Yeah, it was it- an amazing high epic Flash Gordon style fantasy into the actual song. Well, yeah, because it does pick up speed. Even though the intro is a little slower going and it's the slowest the album has been at this point as far as tempo goes, it does pick up speed gradually, gradually into that great transition. And what we get next is almost a Michael Jackson-esque kind of sound based on that 75 to 80 year period that you're talking about specifically, Steve. That's what's so fascinating about it is it's just like him starting off with like the, the core keyboard effect that maybe just with a few extra filters, but then the beautiful chords somehow get more funky. And, and it was such an effortless transition, it sounds like it would be a really difficult one to achieve. Um, so it goes from something very ethereal into something a little bit more halted and, yes, very funky. Um, the, the, the first verse, it felt completely warmed up. It was, it was like it was taking off at this point. Great bass line kicks in, and I'm starting to sense that this is, these are the types of things that Alan Palomo likes in a, in a chord progression. Mode mixtures, chromatics, and, and this is just where his soul is. Um, maybe I found the artist, I don't know. <laughs> but most of this is just this chromatic shift between E-flat minor and in E major 7. And uh, honestly, at the same time, this is really where I felt the Michael Jackson vocals, this yes. time specifically the vocals, were their most apparent. Well, it's this idea where he's still taking his kind of even vocals, but he's peppering in the falsetto here. It's not as apparent, but he goes up for certain notes. And of course, Michael Jackson was known for doing that constantly. Um, and it really kind of gives this air of that error that you specifically mentioned. It also, John, and John pointed this out, it seemed as if this track was more cluttered when it picked up speed, but it wasn't actually. It wasn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to say clutter, I want to say busy. busy. There's a lot going on right here, but... If you were to actually see the the individual lines of synth being produced right here, it, it's very clean. There's very little f- different lines. It's, well, it's clean and it's formulaic. In other words, you very easily get a sense of what the patterns are. And once you get a sense of what those patterns are, then you can kind of you kind of get used to it to the point where you figured the track out. I guess you've unpacked it in your head in a certain way, which isn't to like diminish it completely. But I I, I think that's what's necessary once again for a lot of dance tracks. Although may, I think it would still be beneficial to keep something a little bit up in the air, something that was still evading you a little bit, because that, of course, is what's going to keep you interested on the dance floor. But, I don't know, it's a fine line. The percussion was there just to do enough to keep you in the heartbeat kind of an idea of what's going on. It was very light, and that's something that um, Electronica has had issues with, that, that everything from disco has had issues with. When it comes to the synthesized beats, it's really easy to overdo it. Here, yeah. nice and light and just enough to propel the song along. Also, the choice of having 
most of the, the, the work done in higher tones and a higher register did a lot to make it seem more energized on top of just how complicated the individual lines were going to be. In the way, in the exact way that we recall from Michael Jackson's Exactly. Vocals. It was it was it was a good it was a little kismet of, of ideas coming together right here to make a really danceable yet at the same time lyrically a depressing track. I was gonna say, because lyrically this doesn't smell of Michael Jackson, especially in those years at all. Most nah. of his tracks were very fun-loving, you know, about partying or, or dancing or enjoying yourself or, or love. This this is, you know, about a slumlord and in quite a lot of detail, too. And it just seems like an odd topic to sing about to this tone. But, I mean, we've talked at length about songs that will take a fairly depressing topic and put it to an upbeat song. Yeah, the concept of the whole slumlord business is interesting here because, once again, focusing on his unique perspective as a night owl and noticing these goings-on, he really, really gets into the thick of maybe the dark sides of, of what he sees. And there have been a lot of dark sides in this album as well, but on one hand, you're dancing. On the other hand, you're you're watching a slumlord just doing what he's doing. Uh, here's verse 2. Staying out of the hallway and hold tight till Saturday because you got the rent to pay. Dreams of shelling out next to none, with no Rubicon. Well, honey, those days are gone. Those days are done. Uh, shelling out three Gs for four walls and keys. Hey, at least you can run the town. Shaking our pockets loose. Hey, what's the use? I guess we're taking it sitting down. Um, that, first of all, it's that, that's a nice flow as far as lyric writing is concerned. It's the first time it's really just like reached out and grabbed me. It's not to say he hasn't had moments yet, but it, it, it takes a lot amidst the otherwise encapsulating beat to really like say, ah, that's a nice little, that's a nice little bit of poetry. Um, and again, I really want to immerse myself into this overall noir feel that he's he's building but not in the way that we would expect noir because normally it's just like well in a club setting you're not normally thinking of the dour aspects of the night but he's trying to deliver you it all at once and one more general thing i will say about this track as a whole is that speaking of that point i think he has a tendency to deliver you both the atmospheric and the groovable at the same exact time it's 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 slightly more serious especially like in the chorus you'll notice it gets very disco but it is more serious and still has a danceable air to it but yet it's more serious but yet it's it, it's disco so all of it he can just he, he's found a way to infuse this back when we did scale the summit i i mentioned that uh one of the tracks evergreen was a crystallized moment this this is a long shot that's what he likes to do and he does a great job of doing it instead of being forced to 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 view something the way it is it's um it's more akin to a a prolonged overview of of a cityscape or of a scene in say a strip club or in a slum or something like that he does a great job of using the groove to propel the scene forward without actually changing anything about the scene you're just being introduced to different elements of it different characters with different roles like the tapping keyboard that comes in later on in the track that's sort that of one. just kind of like phased into what's going on and doesn't seem out of place even though it really had no context when compared to the very beginning of the track it, it was it was a different thing and then there's the dream state phasing in and out that he does very late in the track where it, it sort of drops down it's it's another one of those muting moments but it drops down comes back up drops down comes back up the only way I can really explain it as sort of the dreamscape bouncing in and out, almost in in, in a lot of ways as as uh, waking up from a haze or something like that. You're you're waking up in fits and starts and things like that. 
here I really like it because it's something different. It's not just let's bring it down a notch and just bring it down to a bass and percussion or something like that. This was this was really interesting the way it was phasing. Yeah, and it shows integration because considering he started off with the very like atmospheric piano style, like it it this is the first time where I feel like it's not this this innovative idea that is either tacked on to the beginning or the very end of a song that that is separate and still uniquely awesome but separate here it's integrated here i feel like he's managed to keep that atmospheric air all the way to the end even to the uh sort of airy oddball breakdown where he actually invokes some uh some spanish lyrics here which i am not going to bother butchering uh but you know speaks to his his mexican background and uh, it sounded like it was actually sampled from something and i thought it was interesting because i know for fact i read in an interview he he has sampled certain uh uh things from his own from his father who by the way was a 1970s mexican pop star very briefly but he he enjoyed it I As mean, a brief stint, I mean. I don't know if he enjoyed it. Maybe he hated it. That kind of dialogue we get in that outro or monologue, I guess, if it's just one person, does bleed really well into the, I guess, reprise you can almost call, which is track nine, which is Slumlord Release. Um, this is just instrumental, but it seems to serve as an outro to the entire track, but it had enough character of its own that it deserved its own track. Um, this is still steeped in 80s, but it feels more like an action film. It, it has this kind of breath to it, this energy the previous track didn't have, that but did birth out of the previous track. It does uh, also introduce two elements, the shakers and bongos. I'm pretty sure they were bongo yeah, percussion. It sounded like legit actual physical percussion, not just programmed. And it, it took the exact actual slumlord through line and reimagined it multiple times over and over again. I loved it for the fact that it was a great groove just to keep going on with, but it doesn't do anything besides just keep fooling around with that groove, with the melody itself. It it really doesn't go anywhere else. I mean, there were some details and intricacies that weren't in the main track that he plays with a little bit here, but you're right. Even those little intricacies are still more or less within the groove that we had previously. It's just expanding a little bit on what he had already been doing. Yeah, I mean, I would agree entirely with the whole action film analogy. I think just everything with this... The synth is relentless, the percussion's relentless, and there's a lot of crashes amidst this. It just feels like it has a lot more drama than than anything else. It's a kind of musical action drama, uh, which is a little bit out of place for the album, but it it's like I, I hear that if this isn't a battle scene, it's at least leading up to a battle scene, and that's just so bizarre. It's not a very long track, um, but that's, <laughs> that's what you get here, and frankly, I was just really enjoying it on that level alone. And from there, there we get uh, track 10, Techno Clique. So the thing about Techno Click that I or click or click <laughs> uh, Techno Click that I had uh, noticed was it reminded me of another very famous '80s song, uh, Axel F by Harold Faltmeyer, which most people remember for the synth, the dan, 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 that kind of stuff. But I I recognize the bass line here, the bass tone here that started the track was very reminiscent of the bass line in in Axel F, which is not at the forefront, but it was still something that was very 80s to me. Um, of course, once the vocals come in and we get this kind of robo-voice, I'm like, um, okay, what no. are we doing now? I'm okay with this because this is my favorite type of techno. This is, it's borderline trance. It's it's almost there. It doesn't really have the high energy to really go full-fledged. The repeated vocals, very de-emphasis on what's being said, just having a human voice there once in a while to punctuate it. This is my favorite thing about techno. This is how I like my electronica. 
It is simple driving techno. It's definitely thinner than the previous tracks. Um, That's what I felt made it a little bit more artier, I, yeah. I would say. I mean, it keeps the whole E-flat minor feel from a couple tracks ago, but every the, the pulse, some shakers in the background, the, the bass, which comes back in, in certain intervals, uh, and those sound effects, again, those random sound effects of, like, blaster sounds and things like that. It, it, it formulates, it does formulate a kind of background music. It would make good good driving music, I think. Um, but even, even, even like, the bo- vocals, they, they, they barely commit. They're just... They're there, um, but they're so weak. It's just like they phase in here and there just to kind of remind you that they're present. It, it was mostly designed as a whole. The track was designed to, to make you get lost in the beat itself and, and as I well did. as the soundbite showcase, and I think it did, it did that pretty well. Well, yeah. I mean, this is as specifically a club song as you can get. I mean, I imagine listening to this track being in a sweaty, dark underground club, bodies against bodies, just dancing and sweating, not even in a sexual way, just very much in a heat of the moment music moving as one kind of thing. And honestly, for it to convey that so well, like honestly, you know what I picture? The club scene in the beginning of the first Matrix movie. Like how every, everything's dark, everybody's close, yeah. there's laser lights. Like that's really what I picture here. And Back when like raves were common. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back in my day when I used to put glow sticks on ropes and do poi. Uh, anyway, uh, um, uh, I actually did do that. Don't look up old photos of me. Anyway, um, uh. but it did also have this ambiance to it that was really nice. Like we talk about a lot of dance tracks that just feel like a dance song and are kind of cliche. Here it felt right. For the album and for the moment, it felt right. But I'm gonna, I am gonna propose a little bit of a snag. I, I, I do think that as arty as this is, it and, and as atmospheric as it is, I'm um, down with atmosphere. I'm all about atmosphere. But atmosphere works when it's, I, I don't want to say revolutionary, but a distinct enough setting change that you feel like you're being taken on a journey. And I didn't quite feel that a journey was really happening in this particular track. I know it's just there. It's, it's background but it's music. But it's not really designed to I know, be a journey. I know, I know. I'm, I, this is more my point. I think I think he's best when he has more narrative content like ah. we witnessed in the last couple of cases. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I think trying yeah. to insist a journey on this track doesn't make sense, but comparatively to other tracks I can get where no, you're coming from. No, it just from. means we're at track 10 and I'm getting picky. And yeah. I, I, I know what he does best. But Furthermore, I am going to even play Devil's Advocate again because I will admit this is a dance track and I do want to at least leave the door open the fact that like time works differently on the dance floor. So uh, for many of these tracks that simply are dance oriented, if you play them on the dance floor, you might say in listening at home, well, on your headphones, this is this is dragging on a little bit too long or I just feel a little too much atmosphere, not enough narrative content. You're not looking for narrative content on the dance floor. You certainly are just looking for the thing. You're looking for the groove and for it to be consistent and frankly for it to give itself its due. You're 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 gonna be up there in the dance floor, presumably for longer than five minutes on end, so continue it. Something you can remix, something that you can extrapolate on on the fly is ideal. And tracks like this work best. Yeah. But if we're gonna talk about the best and the best of what Neon Indian has done on this, Baby Eyes is by far my favorite track. Yeah, you I want, think you want content. This screams cut this is this is a story unto itself. I think I'm not stepping out on a limb by saying unanimously this is our favorite track, or at least it's up there for all of us. Absolutely. Um yes. the, the thing that's interesting is the groove that 
comes in isn't super fast. However, the synth that comes in almost immediately is. I called it uh, fast finger piano. These the notes speed that keyboard, are, yeah. yeah, speed keyboard. It's just note after note after note, and it's it's so. It has such a dramatic start because it's so in your face, and I loved that. This rang perhaps the closest of Pink Floyd on the album. And yes. Pink Floyd were masters of atmosphere and storytelling, and uh, incidentally, of course, this sounds very Floydian. I mean, it's just, it, quarterly, it's not very complex. It's mainly just on the, the minor one and the minor five until perhaps the pre-chorus, but the, the accents, the, the, the pops against the slow groove are what really, really make it work. It's phenomenal. Um, and by the time we get the chorus, you get something which, once again, is not where I thought this was going to go. But like I said much earlier, I like surprises. And amidst this slow groove, we take this up to 16th notes, which again, for a slow groove, is not very fast. It's just it's just a sort of like... It's very slow, uh, even slower than that, more deliberate, but using more of a wub sound instead of the, the chitches that I just did. It's, it's, it's it, the closing instrumental here. The, at the tail end of the chorus is even more phenomenal because you get this breath mark where everything else just drops out and all you're left with are just those wub sounds. And, and it's just this, this bass that, that it has a gurgle to it. It's so deep, so on the low end, and it just it pops out amongst everything else. It's just showing his, 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 his mixing prowess at its best. It's addicting. Actually, the chorus was one of the most curious things about this track. It has sort of a pre and post. It actually has a bookmark nature to it. Yeah, and it. I was talking about the, the bookmark at the end. The start of the pre and post chorus, I guess we can call it, or or the book ends here, has a really interesting rising tonal shift where, where you just get a nice high-pitched sort of like gunshot kind of an idea. I think that's why I thought it was so shocking when, yeah. when the turn actually came. When it goes into the actual meat of the course, the mid-course, if you will, it almost goes into psychedelic. I mean, it, it, it has that sort of feel. What if Pink Floyd had uh, access to, you know, a synthesizer, like well, an they, actual they synthesizer. Did, they but I'm talking did. about our our equipment his, nowadays. His, his DJ equipment, yeah, I, I think they'd go nuts. It, it it feels just like it it's 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 really really just mean in your face, very apprehensive, very energized. But it doesn't really shift its its progression at all. It doesn't really shift its time signature or anything like that. It's still got the same beat, and that sort of like overlay really does a lot to cement what is the best vocals on the track and frankly phenomenal vocals in in general because the emotion in this track comes through this is no longer the hybrid kind of music we've been getting where it's it's a lot of you know 70s and 80s ideas set to today's kind of dance music or or whatever you want to view it as this really is more classic in its style, more classic in his presentation of the vocalist because Even, he's there, he's present, and he's not really with the music. He's he's standing much more as a forefront character. Well, Almost even, like he's a front man or something. Go, go figure. Considering you, you're talking about like a, a classic rock style, I certainly hear this also in the melodies themselves, and, and apart from how the chord progression, the overall feel of this feels kind of Pink Floydian, I even see it sort of in the melody. Although let me read from the, from the beginning. Uh, Frankie the Forgotten Son, don't you know there's no running from the things you've done? Frankie, I swear I saw her load the gun. No use in shunning when the deed's been done. Never coming home again till they see the world as I see you. When I'm looking into baby's eyes, and she just where I've been, I see the violence in her pretty eyes, never coming home again till they see the world as I see you. Now, 
what's interesting here is all right this is this is very it's very smooth it's very flowing it's not an elaborate melody but then it even goes a little bit further in in the second verse when she, when he continues Frankie the tabloid son the APB is out yeah you're as good as done Frankie you never should have gave her trust and uh, this moment specifically it's, it's it's almost the same callback to the melodic thing that I liked earlier which maybe just speaks to my love of the scale itself but this little Dorian shift again throwing in that natural six right here you never should have gave her trust I love that it's so beautiful um but yeah then then we are we get a couple cycles here we go to the chorus we go to a, another closing instrumental as strong as it was earlier um and then finally to the the solo which I thought was probably the best solo not certainly well yeah i think on the album i i'm gonna say that i think it was the best solo in the album because here it's it's using the the tools that he's already proved that he he knows best this wonky style which he just goes nuts with but at the same time it comes across as being so innovative uh so unique he's just if he's unafraid and he just goes for it that's when it it is its most effective um, the bass just tightens up and takes the lead, and, and then at the end of this, everything just melts away before we build back up into a jam. It's this is very prolonged outro from from solo into into outro where you think it's going to end, and then doesn't quite end, and then it goes up into another jam again. It's it's phenomenal. There's even a a, a '60s '70s style guitar line that's throughout everything, almost a solo, not quite there. That feels like it's just been completely digitalized, completely synthesized. It's separate as, as, as like the second or third ending part. I mean, there are three logical endings before we actually get the ending to this song. And I usually hate those. I rarely, rarely enjoy a coming back up, rebuild it or something like that. Here, I didn't want it to end. This is a six minute track that ended four times and I was disappointed because it ended. I felt it was in some ways the, a, a track that continuously gives you what you want. And I realize there's even a faux pas in that because it's like, well, no artist should be aim, I guess, to say, okay, here, let's do everything the audience wants. But at the same time, there is also, you know, an audience sati satiating I, I guess streak that needs to run through you being like well this is going to be a great performance a great a great stage trick nonetheless even though it's appearing on an album and I feel like he just he had an intimate knowledge of this in the, in the, in the wrapping up of this track I would even argue that it's not necessarily giving the audience what they want but bringing the audience to your level and your mindset and just giving you what you want but the audience is there with you so they want it as yeah, well a showmanship is what I was looking for yeah it's that lead into you know knowing exactly what you're working with and manipulating in a certain way that the audience is on board so what you want and what the audience want is one and the same alright from that we go to track 12 c'est la vie parenthesis say the casualties so this track I mean, I feel like anything to follow up Baby's <laughs> Eyes might have been a difficult thing to do, but this particularly gave me very much a kind of huh kind of feeling. It, the, it just feels completely emotionally, musically, structurally, everythingly divorced from the previous track. It's I, not, it's not, and it's not like a vapid track, but it's so uplifting that it feels almost like a, a, this just like fake. Uh, Persona it feels insincere almost. almost. It's like, first of all, we're back to that whole TV theme idea, a cheesy TV theme from the era. But everything is just this got this this consistent you know do, 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 over and over again. Just and and then by the time we reached the chorus, I was just I was just flat out checked out. I, I thought this was silly. I'm not even sure if I could enjoy this this 
harmlessly or not, like separate from the album, as if like I were to just take this out of context, then I would be able to say, oh, well, it'd be it would be fine in another setting, unless it was maybe like a comedy album of sorts. I feel like there is some kind of I, I really am going to want to look at the lyrics here because there's some kind of angle I, I, I must stress. Uh, cool hand, teller. Take it easy, fella. Because these people won't be fooling around. Sure shot chosen. Everybody knows it. Because tonight is going down. The room will surrender when the band comes around. You better run before they hit the ground. Heads will roll at the start of the sound. The creep show, the loudest in town. So, uh, the best I can gather at so far is the is building a kind of fake stage pres uh, a stage show coming to town a presence you know the mr kite rolling in that kind of thing i don't know yeah but the problem here also is you know with those lyrics and not too long after that we get such a weird hard mid track transition it just doesn't make any sense we go from kind of a groovy walk along kind of a sound into something that feels like a 1970s sound was used to screw up a 1950s sound like <laughs> it felt like a kid song like howdy doody time style kid song yeah that was just turned into something that was supposed to be dark and dreary and everything like that 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 a lot of like early metal did and things of that sort but here it was synthesized and computerized and screwified and all that sort of stuff it was just creepy kid singing style I will say he drifts momentarily into these, these little beautiful moments but then it's like yeah he throws that right back man oh it's time for a kid's show I, I don't know I mean I think the, the the thing that you referenced the benefit of being Mr. Kite which is a song that's circusy and kind of creepy, but in its charm. Whereas here, it's just creepy for creepy's sake, and there's not really a lot of charm to be found in the track at all. And I think that's where it loses itself. It just it feels it feels fake and insincere, and I think that's a big problem. It's very evasive too, lyrically. I mean, continuing, given Cinderella a page of your novella, but she's been too busy being unwound. The room is moving. Everybody tuned in to the wave of the supersonic sound. And she's had the ticket clutched in her hand long before you ever heard of the band. Yet she's had the feeling, since before she could stand, something we could never understand at the creep show. It's just, it's bizarre. It's, it's absolutely odd, and honestly, knowing what he, he's capable of, I mean, I'm not... I can't say that I'm shocked by it, because he's done some odd stuff before, but this just seems even odder than anything else we've gotten thus far uh, I'm calling it he's if, if there's a message here he is speaking above me yeah it's over our head or it's just I don't often unclear. I don't often admit that but um it's, I don't know yeah. he wrote these lyrics with with intention I just I can't I can't decipher them at present uh, let's go to track 13 61 Signy Avenue which uh is interesting because really the the theme here I is, is really not difficult at all to decipher uh it's namely about just a police crew breaking up a party. That's it. Name probably at 61 Signy Avenue. Well, 61 Signy, curious fact, uh, for those of you who are novice astronomers, are two stars back in the Cygnus constellation. They're kind of not too far away, around 11 light years. They're an oddball pair of stars that orbit one another. We used to think there was a planet there. A little bit of history lesson has nothing to do with the song. I don't know. You make me think there is a reason, but nah, 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 can't be. I don't know, but that's that's sounds like that would be an inspiration for a name. But musically, we're back to the reggae here. Uh, very interestingly, kind of matching up with the reggae we got so much earlier on this album in Annie. 
It's almost the same exact flow, correct? It's almost beat for beat, identical. We played them back to back, and if they're not the same, they are incredibly similar. Try it. Play it. I encourage anyone out there to play the beginning of Annie, then play the beginning of this. It's it, it's just so close. It feels it was at least born out of the same idea and only slightly altered. Um, but, yeah, this just, in general, because we were back to reggae, which, you know, I wasn't thrilled about Annie as a track either until the tail end, uh, this is where I could kind of start to use the word vapid a little bit, only because it sounded like the soundtrack to a, a pool party or a beach party, whatever. I I only barely cared about this track. I felt like um, some of these lyrics here, especially considering uh, the theme, Up all night with the radio, star-peppered black draping over me, walking down the street, bad blood, bad blood to napalm ratio, uh, no love in class for the absentee, walking down the street, call up the party high priest, Oh, where, oh, where do the people go? And they're having a party at 61 Signy Avenue. What you gonna do when they come for you? Um, uh, I'm thinking a reference to the famous, uh, what you gonna do when they come for you, used in Cops, Bad yeah. Boys, and yeah. all that. Um, I, I, I don't know, it sounds like a very cl- typical scene to me. All right, people are looking around. Oh, where's the party? Oh, where's the party? Hey, there's a party going on at my house. Everybody come by. And then all of a sudden, the police come in, they raid it, and... I don't know. Maybe it's maybe maybe there is more depth to this than that. I'm I am not honestly sure. But it, the, musically, it didn't take me anywhere special other than the general soundtrack that you'd expect at a party atmosphere. It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, again, we're getting back to a very '80s sound here, which Annie had, which we referenced, and it just it it feels it was almost aggravating to me because it sounded so much like. A dozen songs that are in my head that I can't think of the name of. Like it sounded so much like so many songs, I couldn't actually place it. And I think what I was just thinking of was Annie earlier on the album, but it was just hauntingly specific in how much it fit that kind and, of genre. And you're not the only one because I had the same. I had the same feeling. Um, it, it just. It was it, honestly as a song as a whole. It was just disappointing. Like at this point, we're expecting them to, especially what we got in Baby's Eyes, which is coming towards the end of the record. I just expected them to hit new heights and follow that train, and it didn't. You know, Say La Vie and this track as well, Sixty One Signy Avenue, are just disappointing to me. Eh. All right. And I don't mean to be too harsh here. It's just like toward the end of the album. Yeah, you really want that content in here. It's just he has a tendency to throw you back and forth between like a generic dance track and then all of a sudden something meaty that could be used in both settings uh, equally and that's where I think that's where the talent is. So let's go to uh, track 14. Um, News from the sun, parenthesis, live bootleg. Um, Kind of in the same ballpark. So yeah, this song feels very Prince, which we'd had hints of throughout the record but here and this is late to mention this by the way because yeah. Prince really I believe is a f- one of his foremost influences and we hadn't mentioned that at any point we've been going to Michael Jackson because we heard it but really I think Prince is one of his dominant in- inspirers but here specifically in the vocals in the tones in the sounds it feels very Prince but what I said earlier was it feels Prince like the way the song Bowie by Flight of the Concords feels like Bowie to bring up Bowie, who was on our minds today, you know, where that song sounds like a Bowie track because it's a parody of a Bowie track and it's about Bowie. Here, it feels the same way. It feels so much like Prince. I, I almost feel like it's a parody of it. It feels like Prince is falling apart. There's still all the signature ideas that we got in the rest of the album where things are a little convoluted, a little bit broken apart from what you normally would expect. There's still a little bit of that experimentation going on, but it's not 
it's not the great things we were going ooh and ah over earlier in the album. It's just a different slant on a lot of the same themes that we are very familiar with. Yeah, I think that this track, you know, as a whole, especially for close too, to to get into that a bit, since details of the track are hazy at best for me. It, it, you know, I mean, it had the liquidy sound bites. It had some of the other stuff that the previous tracks had. But all in all, it was fairly predictable, and a predictable end to the album. Not an album, an end I would have predicted, but predictable in the sense that the track just seemed very, very, very much even. You know, and it's a bummer because I don't. Again, like Steve was saying earlier, I don't want to be too harsh on the tail end of this album because all in all, I do like what he does, and I like the record as a whole. To interrupt you. <laughs> I've said so often on this podcast that I'm more critical at the ends of albums, and I don't think I found a better example than here. Yeah. Because it, it's it's a classic case where an artist kind of uses up his tricks nest a little bit. Uh, that sounds that sounds a little harsh, but it's it's it, it's the area where I feel like any artist is going to have to summon like some of his most creative uh, ideas just to keep. A listener interested and to keep them expecting new and fresh things from this artist as opposed to just his general overall sound which you know even if even if you love it is still going to be a bit of a coasting ride once you get that late in an album yeah no I agree I just I wanted something more for a close especially since even though the theme wasn't super apparent other than what we've heard in interviews and like as we analyze it we found more of it it's not super in your face so you can enjoy this album at whatever value you want but this tail end just seems like a letdown comparatively to especially the way it started because it started so strong i'll say one thing specific about this track so we are not just dismissing it in, in this in these general terms but um it, obviously once again fan of the mixing don't really have to i think say that too much more the the bass is phenomenal i i kind of wanted to do a little more for this track though but the one really unique thing this track does is that uh, although perhaps it's no longer unique for the album, is it's that chromatic motion again. When in the chorus, he he uses this 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 motif where it just falls down, uh, half step by half step. It falls down from from B flat major down to A major down to A flat major. This consistent each and every note just dropping down a half step at a time. It sounds like the whole thing is just being bent downward, like it's 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 falling downward. It does temporarily jump to F so that way it can pivot all the way back up to B flat. But it just sounds like someone's messing with the speed because since speed is proportional to pitch, if it slows itself down, it it, it flats itself, and that's that's what this. Uh, gives the impression of but it's it's a tool he used earlier on and i guess like once again even that wasn't so so new here so fresh um and that's about it <laughs> who's going first not it i'll go first oh wow that worked sweet well i'm gonna go last next Fine. week and that's I know true um, i'll take more on that for the team. this is i kind of wish it was made back during the the 80s at the end of the day like it would have been phenomenal back then it would have been an amazing album because it's so steeped in the past and that's really where things kind of fall apart for me on this album it's so steeped in the past that when the past is rearing its heavy hand I just can't get away from it. If it had been made back then, it would have validated the aesthetic. Yes. Actually, it would have probably pushed it forward. It would have created... We would have gotten Electronica 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier. It would have been... Well, remember, Electronica was there. It's the case of really using that particular brand of Electronica that was present in the 80s and maybe pushed it further into the future as opposed to people dismissing it as something that died with the decade. 
Slumlord's release alone could have done something magical for that era. Just the idea of taking uh, the action scene music idea, redesigning it under a single uh, uh, percussion line, and then reimagining it over and over and over again, sort of promoting the idea of just the scenes changing. It, when you when you listen to it, it's almost like you're they're being busted through walls into different rooms of an apartment. That's that that kind of an idea would have been amazing. End of the seventies, early eighties. It would have done so much as a standalone piece by itself that being said the tools and a lot of the ideas are more along the lines of what is present music present electronica the integration of these ideas into the old school aesthetics is really great i i enjoy this album almost front to back it really does have a lot going for it but Actively, I'm enjoying only about half of it. That means uh, so much of it is really just background noise for me. It's not in, in enticing me the same way the other half is. Because it's not presenting new ideas. It's just redoing a lot of the ideas I've already gotten in the album. One of my big harps today was the fade out, the, the muted section. I'm tired of, of, of having to talk about it on this album because it was used so often. And these tricks, and a lot of them are tricks, get old real quick. You have to be imaginative and inventive when you're doing electronica, and parts of this are, parts of this aren't. So, I'm putting it at, I'm putting it at a 375. It's got some really great ideas, but some of it just is, just tiring and honestly for the most part the vocals were just unnecessary and that that to me is a major detractor it didn't feel like it was imparting a lot of stuff and to have vocals and then make it so that they're just so blended in with the rest of the music i can't understand them i just it, it's something i'm always gonna i'm always gonna just harp on yeah, this uh, album took me through quite the roller coaster as far as what I expected to rate it. It's almost like track by track, I I was I was being thrown for a loop. I was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna soar this into the upper echelon, and now and then I'm gonna tank it. And I'm gonna soar it again. Um, Why are you messing with my emotions, Alan, Mister Mister Polomo? <laughs> um, this is. Considering you were talking about aesthetic, John. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's pretty impossible, really, even not to address the whole 80s thing, especially considering some of the albums we've done recently. I, I remember saying episodes and episodes ago that, you know, we're getting a lot of this, and it, it's, it's, it doesn't stop. It just keeps coming. It's, it's like this is just this is the, the changing of the tides. It's that 30-year rule that you proposed way back when, John. It's proving true. Um, episode 141, that was, actually. I remember that. We were talking about Wild Nothing uh, with uh, Mr. Devin Jackson Mullen. Um, the 30-year rule, which is that every 30 years, everything things come back, and people get nostalgic because the people that are making music and, and, and doing things, involved in the arts, doing anything, are the ones who can make the calls. They can make the choices. Um, interestingly, though, uh, this guy is born in 1988, so I don't think he can really remember a lot from the 80s, so it's just what he likes. It's just where he, it's where he sits. Um, you gotta respect that for it, and he doesn't just utilize it in a cursory sense. He he really does go pretty far with it. And I'm with John in the fact that I'm sort of half and half with this album. It, it started off amazingly just with the intro, but then the opening single, Annie, was kind of bland. I, I've, I've heard 
I've heard too much reggae, you know, to be, it, it, it needs to be like totally reworked to me. I can't just jam along to reggae like a lot of people can. Maybe that's a fault of mine that I can't just relax with it, but I need there, be, there to be something else and not necessarily three minutes deep into the track for an amazing solo in as much as it was. Um, but it's, it's all about three and four here. I'm really just hugging the early parts of this album more than anything except for uh, uh, Baby's Eyes, which is much later. So that's pretty crazy. Three, four, and 11 are my favorite tracks. And then there was a lot of back and forth wishy-washy stuff in the middle there the only justification i can provide for it is the fact that being a dj being the idea that he i think wants this stuff to be readily available for the dance floor maybe he feels as if he can't do something that is thoroughly uh narrative driven something that feels like it has that perfect arc that baby eyes has um i i don't know i i think that I, I think that would be a fallacy. I don't know if that's the reason behind it, but I think that people are ready for that, and I believe that all three of those tracks are phenomenal in both settings, whether you just want to sit in your in your chair with your headphones on and, and focus intently and do nothing else except listen and, and be immersed into the environment that he's created because it is just that... that it, it's that off the wall, considering he enjoys these these wonky bends and everything, which is is a style that I really do think is a, it, it's his. It's 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 absolutely his. He's owning it in a way that that is something I have n- I'm not comparing to to uh, to any other artist. He may use little tones and synthesizers that are evolved from the '80s, but what he does with them are, are entirely his. But uh, once again, you can either focus or you can dance along to those three tracks. The rest. Yes, I don't know. They 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 lose my interest a little bit. That said, they're still pretty amazing, and I think he's an artist who is going in pretty uh, in in bold new directions. Who knows? This may also be a result of that early thing I mentioned about merging the the uh, the, the monikers of of uh, Vega with Neon Indian and dropping one uh, in in lieu of the other. And he's gonna throw all his cards into Neon Indian now, and maybe it it left him in a slightly wishy-washy place where he didn't quite know what he was going to produce. He just knew that to produce two would be so similar, would be too similar for him to justify keeping both around. So maybe that's all it is. I, I just was looking for a slight bit more cohesion. That said, I do believe this is this is well enough to, this is good enough to be in the fours. I think this is in that territory, and I think just based on the stuff that he did introduce, which is, in my opinion, revolutionary, um, I think this is a 4-2-5. Well, all right. Well, there's a split here. Let's see where I fall. Um, Because if you haven't been able to tell by that wonderful start, I am still undecided. Uh, I will say that I I didn't really have any expectation. And I love when we get a listener request that I have no expectations for. I mean, my favorite album of 2014 came from that when uh, Heather recommended uh, Owen Paulette. Uh, or, or in Palette. I think we had been saying it wrong the whole time as Music oh, A yeah. to Z had yeah, directed absolutely. us. Absolutely. Uh, Owen Palette. We were, we were. And that became one of my favorite records, and he's become a favorite artist of mine. Like, I always go back to him. I really enjoy him now. And so I look forward to these recommendations because it's out of the scope of the three of us, and it's an even fresher perspective. Um, I enjoyed the record as a whole. There was really only a few moments where I w- really didn't enjoy it as much, and it was towards the end of the record. The, the Even the stuff during the album that felt like it was a little repetitive I never got tired of but you know 12 13 and 14 I just if the album ended at baby's eyes I feel like I might even be rating it higher because it would seem more cohesive to me I just feel like that tail end kind of derails the album 
Um, and we've rated before for derailing the tail end of an album, and we've tanked some albums. But here, I think there's enough talent, like Steve said, and enough to get into that I, I absolutely would never tank this album for that. I just wish that those highlights were more common and or more innovative more frequently and that I'm definitely looking forward to their next record and looking forward to going back to their older stuff because maybe I'll find what I'm looking for maybe the older stuff might be more concise or might have a stronger through line um, the nightlife theme sure I'm going to pull one from Steve's book you know you tell me it and then I listen to this and I see it I don't I don't know that I would have picked it out I would not have se. picked it out had I not read about it yeah. in an interview. And I think that hurts it a little bit. Um, you know, but arc-wise, I mean, it's pretty strong. Even the tracks that I like less, there's still enough of a through line of what he does, except in Say La Vie. I have no idea what the hell's going on in that track. But beyond that one, they, there's a through line of what he's done before on this album. And so that consistency is here, and it's pretty strong. Um and undeniably, there's a talent as well. Uh, it, it would be unfair for me to uh, rate it's, it below the stolen. upper echelon. <laughs> it would be unfair to me to rate it below the upper echelon. But that said, I don't, I don't, I don't quite see what Steve sees in it, and it might be from a place of hope or intrigue or interest, which is perfectly valid. But for me, I think this is just an even four, um, especially considering what we came from last week and the interesting electronic stuff that was done in that album. I think here, this is an even four. I think if there were more cohesive consistency and a stronger theme that I could pick out, not just from being told about it, that would push it up even further. So averaged out, it will be an even four. Yes. All right. Uh, I want to give a cordial thank you to Music A to Z, uh, the Music A to Z podcast, specifically Doug Ferguson, as he's the one who suggested it. Uh, I listened to just enough of their podcast to know that I believe uh, Doug had introduced it to Steve Ferguson. So, And I believe they had both seen them live, I'm pretty sure, at least one, uh, maybe both. And I'm very excited to listen to their thorough analysis. I listened to just the intro, and it's just like, nah, nah, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. I should, I should get into the work on my own. And I'm very excited to see how how they tackle this. And I just want to say thank you because, uh, for whatever it was, you had me at least jamming out at the piano. Which, um, when I'm doing that for any work, that is that is as I consider it a total success. I am satisfied with with how this came out. Um, and I think that um, something to focus on here. And we've talked about this kind of emerging 80s being everywhere before. We, we've talked about it, you know, it's come up. And we've talked about the 30-year role and the repetition and, 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 and nostalgia, as it were. But what I'm curious about is, could we predict what the 30-year rule would sound like for today's music? What would today's 30-year rule sound like? If they look back on the 2010s, what would that sound be when influencing? So you're proposing a, in the 2040s, what is it going to be? Is that what you're saying? Theorizing, yeah, sure. Let's do a little predictive music analytics. I yeah. will, Okay, I know what pop music will sound like. It will sound like a single individual, no matter what musician is actually singing. And it would be uh, essentially just remixing the rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star over and over and over again so that everybody in the entire world, all 15 billion of us at that moment in time, there's been a couple of world wars, so it's okay. There's only 15 billion. We could still sustain that population. It just feels like they're involved in the music itself. I mean, that's all that pop music is going to be at that point. Um, 
So you're a little um, you're a little cynical much? Nah, I couldn't tell. Uh, it would be really loud though. Decibels would be through the roof. My approach would probably be a little more realistic. I think that something that's been pretty common, as you've discussed, is referring back to the 80s. But I don't think they're going to refer back to us referring back to then. That would be a little meta, and I'm not going to go there because it would make my eyes cross. However, I think that something that's been common, you know, a lot lately, especially in pop music, is anthemy passionate songs. Um, to the point of we've we've talked about it at length that we can't stand it in bands like a One Republic and fun with a period, that kind of stuff. I think that when looking back on this decade of music, it's going to be a lot of still heavily technology influenced, probably the next step of whatever technology influence will be, and it's hard to say, but it's going to still have that kind of high energy positivity, you know, arena style sound. I think, I think that we had a lot of negativity in music in the 90s, even into the aughts, you know, especially if you look at metal or rap. Whereas here, I'm seeing a lot more rap and rock that does have a more positive spin. It is looking towards the future and improvement and growth. And so I think music in 30 years from now is going to look back on that growth and that positivity and maybe even build on it. But not before a depressing 2020s and 2030s spell. Yep. Where we're very deeply existential and, and worried of everything. All right, uh, Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a fair prediction. I will say that, you know, considering... I, I see this mostly as a pop thing, regardless. Because obviously, yeah. if you're involved in your own art and you're involved in just... If you're on a specific path on, in a particular genre, I don't think you're gonna pay a damn attention to this stuff, to this 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 trend. Um, and to be honest, I don't even think Alan Palomo is paying any attention to it. I think it's just well, it was his idea, but it does seem to be a a a a, a trend that no one is consciously following. But they're like, ah, oh, let's let's look back on that. That's it's just it's it's where nostalgia takes you. Um, but actually, as far as pop is concerned, I, I did take a little bit of a lead from some, some advice. I forget what celebrity I was, I was watching. It was some interview that tried to address exactly what this whole criticism of, of present-day pop music really means and, and why it's particularly uh, vindictive. Because people always like to say, well... Pop music, it, it has no soul. It has no soul. It's just, it's just driven by this this inner marketing uh, uh, ogre, you know, and it's just produced and manufactured to bring people around. And they always seem to believe this is unique to our decade, and it really is not. It has always been that way. It was it was that way from the beginning of the industry. Um, there was in every single decade there was this brand of very very shallow material, alongside which there were other people that were doing marvelous things you know even with the existing aesthetic that that their pop may have may have borrowed so i do think that if, if you're drawing from from that positive attitude and saying that well if it's not unique here society's not not on this 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 downward slope or anything like that then it becomes a question of how do you define what's out there without defining the stuff that is manufactured how do you define the rest i do think it tends to be a little bit more positive but I, I think I'm more on the line with the electronic stuff. I think I think it's going to be making use of that, uh, making use of really, really heavy layers, not unlike what we saw today, 
making use of filters that perhaps we haven't quite thought of yet. Filters that are really at the cutting edge, things that really only recording engineers know, or thing or people that are actually in the DJ business. Certain things that just they they instinctively know because they're at the cutting edge. They're creating them. The programmers, for instance, may very well be what we're seeing today. They are the musicians. If you can't be uh, at the cutting edge of, of, of mixing, if, for instance, you're not a, a, a programmer. Actually, like the kind of stuff that the Aphex Twin guy does, you know? Yeah. And what he started out doing in the 90s is like building these machines that would just create the sound that he wanted to create, that there was no machine to buy in order to do that. I think that's probably what's going to come around again in 2014, uh, excuse me, in the 2040s, because who knows, there might be another response, another reactionary movement that, for instance, says, well, we have to get more acoustic, you know, and then we'll we'll pull back from this whole trend. Actually, I, I see maybe a, a, a combination of the two. Keeping the acoustic feel, because uh, acoustic music is just never going to be gone. It's something that the nature of the sound itself is just too warm. But to take an acoustic sound, like truly being able to replicate a guitar, an actual Spanish guitar, and taking the notes and playing it out, but then taking that electronica side and shifting notes a fraction of a second here and there and fooling around with it and adding that those slight reverbs and really taking something that sounds natural and making it artificial or even in the reverse taking an artificial sound and making it sound natural i mean yeah that's kind of speaks to when i interviewed joseph bertolozzi who did bridge music and tower music he took sound bites of the eiffel tower and of the hudson uh, mid hudson bridge the mid hudson bridge and then composed them when he went home and wrote music using those sound bites. So yeah, I could easily see that kind of electronic manipulation of natural sounds being the wave of the future. And then there's also the fact that we're gonna have technology integrating more and more and more into our lives. And we talk about this to death, but think about just assigning emotions to, to a computer where it can actually read your temperature and your hormone imbalance and things like that. This is not so far-fetched. We're starting to get this technology now mm. as wearable tech. In the 40s, this should be commonplace. The 2040s. <laughs> I'm Make saying 40s. It's the 40s. It's the next It will one. be the 40s. It's the next set of 40s. Oh, boy. But when you have something that can read your biometric reading and blah, 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 what you are going through right now biologically, why wouldn't somebody create an app that creates sounds associated with it. That might be something I would love to explore into. You show a, just a preference towards when angry hearing trumpets or something along those lines. Well, those have measurable frequencies and having your music respond to your body's actual emotional state would be a phenomenal little technolo uh, technological breakthrough. And it's something I definitely could see by that'll the forties. That'll have its use for uh, for music marketing for sure. But um, I could see that becoming the uh, a major form of music. People create motifs instead of music, instead of songs or tracks. They create. Well, this is going to be natural anger you start, as, th as through Aquatic Lens version <laughs> one. Oh God. <laughs> like Sounds that. like a shitty Nine Inch Nails album concept. I'm saying this might actually go back and and people will start creating, instead of tracks, programs that are supposed to be associated. So your favorite musician would be the person that creates angry music that most personally aligns with how you feel when angry. Almost dehumanizing the music itself. Ouch. And or no, overhumanizing. Exactly. That's what it was going for. Well, Overnaturalizing it, it. Trying to make it more 
closely related to your biological rhythm, which would be ridiculous in one hand, but frankly, I'd be fascinated to actually experience that. The future is a terrifying place. No, it's not. In this case, I'm actually a little hopeful for it. You wanted to end on a on a on a on a I wanted inspiring to note. No, no, I have to argue that. That's not inspiring. Let's argue that. No, Passion. I disagree. No. Passionate argument. You're wrong. Oh, hush. So, um, we're wrapping up this week. Uh, before we get to our something we teased earlier about what's going on for next week, um, we had we mentioned in our year in review the mysterious Mark H who recommended um, the. Um, Black Messiah. Black Messiah, that's right. D'Angelo and the Vanguard. Well, he actually commented an episode later, catching us up on what's happened since we last commented. And uh, Steve is going to read the listener mail for you now. I think it's because we gave a shout-out to him in the, in the year in review, and yeah. he just happened to listen to the year in review, and that's pretty crazy because it's almost a year later. Um, and we called him the mysterious Mark H because we were talking about that album. And, well, he is mysterious to us because he's, it was so long ago now. So he had to say this. He actually commented on the Bjork episode, come to think of it, last week's. Hey there! It is I, the mysterious Mark H. Sorry that it's taken so long for me to respond. Just over a year. Uh, I have a terrible tendency to putting of putting things off to the point of not doing anything. That and I didn't really have much other to say other than, great job. Well, it's okay, Mark. I am guilty of that all too much. Um, I really enjoyed your analysis of Black Messiah and have been really flattered by your response to my email, just as you were probably flattered by my email itself. Your review almost made me decide to check out the 1994 Brendan Fraser comedy with honors. Almost. Well, I'm going to turn that around. Don't worry. Anyways, I'm tempted to send you another album request in the near future. Throughout uh, last year, many albums came to my attention as possible candidates, but I needed to refrain myself from sending you requests so that I wouldn't be a needy fan, hogging all the requests to myself. That's okay. Mark, I feel the need to comment on this. So now I have a list of close to ten possible candidates, so I need to whittle it down (coughs) some more. And they range from albums that I really enjoyed to albums that I think you might really enjoy to albums that were really hyped, but I just did not get and I'm trying to figure out if I'm missing something to finally albums that I'm feeling a little disappointed in but possibly only due to my familiarity with the artist's prior work. There's a good chance I'll just send you something and not tell you where it falls. Uh, To which I responded to him, The Mysterious Mark H. Glad to hear from you and no worries on the delay. I thought it was episodes 173 and 175, uh, Surf by Donnie Trumpet, and the year in review that we threw you the shout out. And indeed, the long shot did pay off. Uh, Hope your 2015 was splendid. As to the album requests, we've accepted two requests from previous listeners, so we'd be glad to accept another. Also, your instincts serve you well. Don't tell us where it falls on your radar. If we can scratch more heads or induce more cringes, let's let the album decide. That's a throwback to his original message last year. Finally, speaking to the 94 film with honors, you should absolutely check it out. It's really a very underrated film and much more substantive than it lets on. Anyway, I remember comparing the music in the library scene of that film to the opening 20 seconds of Black Messiah's third track, Charade. And in retrospect, well, they're nothing alike. But I still feel the same for whatever that's worth. And then to that, I linked the scene (laughs) because it actually is on YouTube. Go figure. Uh, Of course. Well, uh, thank you, Mark, uh, for reaching out. And yes, please send us that listener request. Um, we've had listeners. Uh, I think we've had one listener request. Oh no, yeah, we've, we've had, had two, two listeners who who <coughs> had submitted two requests. Yes. Kristen and Jose. Yes, that's right. Um, and I'm sure Knockjaw is listening and will send us another at some point. Sure. Um, but yes, please send us and write, reach out, write as much as you want. We love hearing from all of our listeners. Um, so now on to next week. Something interesting we have not done in the history of the podcast. We are shifting our rotation only for the next few weeks, and here's why. So as 
John has teased for a while now, he's wanted to do an album that was quite meaty and would require a length of time. So we are swapping choices. John, why is that? Because Monday we have off. Yes. And we are able to actually do a significantly longer listen through and podcast review and everything like that. Our episode, I don't expect to be too much longer, if it is even longer. But frankly, we're doing a two-hour album next week. I did that once before by mistake. It did not go its best. This is a double disc? This is an actual full-fledged double disc, and that is The Vice Quadrant by Steam Power Giraffe. It's about time. I've been waiting to do this for months now. Actually, I've been waiting to do it for over a year because I love Steam Power Giraffe, and the opportunity arose. We have to do it next week because, well... We'll be able to give it like a solid like eight-ish hours to do something like this, oh, and yeah. it'll be great. Oh, yeah. so I'll be quiet, you. You've st- eight I've, hours. I've listened to the album multiple times at this point. It's you. Yes, you're gonna. We're gonna need. We're gonna need an intermission. So yeah, we want to give the album its due. Um, we're going to do John's pick, and then of course by then we'll be hitting our uh, our guest of the month. So um, which is the wonderful and majestic Matthew Holtzclaw, the magician. Magician. The majestic and wonderful Matt Holtzclaw, the magician. Um, he will be the second magician we've ever had on this podcast. The first being, of course, Mr. Nelson Lugo, who's a repeat offender. So, yeah. so Not many podcasts can say they're, they're getting two magicians. And he's not, they're not the only not, two I know, so we could have more. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yes. Uh, we're going to take that on next week. Please tune in. Uh, this will be the third time we are reviewing Steam Power Draft. They are a fan favorite of the podcast. Um, and mine. Mostly mine. Yeah, we all like them, mine. but yes, definitely John's. So, so tune in for that, and we will see you next week. And remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.